Hey there, welcome to season three of Unknowing. If you're just jumping in on this season, we are exploring composting Christianity, letting go of what has become institutionalized, a paradigm of domination and power over, so that we can welcome a more communal, ecological, and creative worldview. Last week on Unknowing, we explored with Brian McLaren an overview, a quick drive-by, a high-level exploration of some of the core historical moments, decisions, councils that influenced the shape of Christianity. Some of the key events that rendered what began as a revolutionary movement, inclusive movement, into a structure that mirrored the Roman Empire and brought with it its values of domination, subjugation, and later colonization. In other words, it mirrored the empire more than the founder. And so this week, I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into the weeds, the historical weeds of the first several centuries of Christianity to explore in particular how women's voices, which of course includes the voices of some of Jesus's closest followers, how these feminine influences became suppressed, silenced. I remember when I was five years old, I marched into my dad's office. This was always a super intimidating thing to do. And I just remember it was like walking into the Holy of Holies, you know, like the place where you weren't supposed to go or be loud or make noise. But I remember walking in there and asking my dad, why can't I be a priest? And he explained to me in, I'm sure, very theologically correct terms and concepts why that was. And I just remember marching out of there being like, um, yep, nope, that can't be right. And there was something about my embodiment as a child that just knew that there was no way that I didn't have the same access to divine embodiment or that I was somehow an incorrect representation of incarnation. It's not like I had this language, obviously, but this instinct to rebel against that inequality was there. And why does this matter if I'm not even sure that I'm really a Christian, (laughs) Christianish? Well, it matters because the influence of the antibody rhetoric that began in those days, that formed those ideologies that placed men as superior, as dominant, are still at play today. Surprise! No one is surprised. But before you roll your eyes, this is one more feminist takedown of the patriarchy. Listen, the exploration of how this influenced Christianity is crucial in understanding how that, in turn, influenced the foundations of the formation of the United States government. Which bodies have rights? Which bodies don't? Which bodies hold the power in public life? And which bodies were given power only in the private sphere? Which bodies deserve to be subjugated, controlled, raped, consumed? And I'm not just talking about the human world here. This is stuff we are still dealing with. And as you know, the premise for unknowing is letting go of what we think we know to make room for what could be. The stance here is not a takedown, it's not to be against, but it's rather to engender an enlivenment of what could be open us up to a greater imagination, creativity, possibility. So I invited Dr. Karen Jo Torgerson, who is the Margot Goldsmith Chair of Women's Studies and Religion at Claremont Graduate School in California, an associate of the Institute of Antiquity and Christianity, and is widely regarded as a leading authority on women in ancient Christianity. In this episode, we'll be discussing her work in her book, When Women Were Priests, women's leadership in the early church, and the scandal of their subordination and the rise of Christianity. If you haven't read this book, I highly recommend you go out and get it and devour it. Okay, friends, with that, let's dive right into episode two of season three of Unknowing, Composting Christianity with Karen Jo Torgerson. So Karen, I like to begin these conversations by asking my guests about the maps that you were handed when you were growing up in terms of how it kind of gave you a specific trajectory or landscape that you began your own journey in. 
I'm curious about your map and sort of what brought you into the world of Christian theology. That actually turns out to be a really complicated question. But okay, I would say that that the most influential or shaping period was when I was between the ages of 10 and 12, and I was living in Mexico, Oaxaca. My mother was an evangelical Christian, so I had that heritage. My father's mother was a Christian science practitioner, so there were some things that came via that channel. And I was, from what my mother tells me, very early a seeker, like starting from age five. And family life, as I've understood it now as an adult, was pretty complicated and hard in many ways. So being a seeker, praying so early was a way of having a foundation outside. So I think that was really important. But what is determinative, I think, for the kinds of questions you're interested in is, so I brought this heritage to Mexico, but we were not part of a community. My parents weren't involved in a church. They weren't missionaries. They weren't diplomatic and they weren't in business. So I think that created a lot of space because there was no grounding community. So I'll just give you one incident, I think, that will illuminate what this meant. The churches in Mexico are beautiful, the colonial churches, from that period of Spanish colonization and Catholic Christianity. And so I remember sitting toward the front in one of these churches, as a tourist, mostly as a child, uh, a few times, and it was dripping with images and <laughs> yeah. laced with gold. And I knew that was really wrong, being raised within the more evangelical tradition. And so I sat there and there were Mexicans and Oaxaca has a very large indigenous population of communities that have kept their identity from before the colonial period. And so I watched the Indios as they came to the altar, came forward to make a petition or light a candle. It's the beauty of the child's mind that is not yet shaped, at least solidified. It's, it's at their influences. So I remember sitting there and watching. And as I watched them, I realized they had met God in this setting where I didn't think God came. And so that just dissolved <laughs> that framework that I brought with me. So there were many experiences like that. So growing up out of the country, finding my way in a culture that was not my own, created a kind of space to do the learning that the, a child learns, which is so much more on the intuitive level rather than on the rational level. So that created the framework for me. It was already a cross-cultural framework and the beginnings of an interreligious framework. Wow, that's incredible. And we didn't speak about this when, when we just hopped on here and, and made our introductions, but I grew up overseas in Spain as a missionary kid really? myself. And yes, so your oh description goodness. of the intuition of a child as, as being... Um, yeah. You know, there's a purity to that, to the experiential trust yeah. that happens as a child that really yeah. mirrors yeah. something that I don't know that I've ever been able to put or articulate quite so eloquently as you just did, that I was seeing and witnessing the experience of the diaphanous divine in every place that I wasn't supposed to yes. be encountering. <laughs> was Yeah. And, yeah. and yet right. there... Oh, yeah. I love it. The diaphanous yeah. divine. And there yeah. God was everywhere. And I, in so many ways, yeah. even the yeah. impetus for this particular season, which is an exploration of, I've called it different things, composting Christianity, unknowing Christianity as empire, trying to mm -hmm. make sense out of how did Christianity turn into this monster that has so shaped um, some of the worst evils in history. But in this particular moment, it feels very important for us to be having this conversation, given all of the decisions that are swirling around and the political yeah, realities right. that we're in. And so I'm very moved by this initial 
map experience that you had, or I should say beyond the map experience that you had in discovering God as greater than the maps of men. <laughs> and yeah. that feels yeah. like a really good segue to dive into your work. And I really want to spend some time discussing this book that you've written that has um, so shaped me and shaped so many people when women were priests. I'd like to begin by asking you about women's cultural authority in the household life in the time of Jesus. It's well documented, and you did a great job documenting in your book how women were patrons of the Jesus movement and the early church, merchants, traders, and heads of their own households. Could you describe the political power and class of these early female patrons, which is not actually the image that most of us have of the first to fourth century Mediterranean women, mm -hmm. especially within a Christian context? Yeah. Probably the important start for this is to do the comparison between the way gender works in our society, our democratic society, and the way gender works in antiquity. And for our society, gender is really determinative, at least it was when I was growing up, let's put it that way. I think your experience has been really different because I was one of the first women to be on the faculty of a seminary. And there were no women in positions of authority in the world that I grew up in. Okay, so gender is really the fundamental determiner for that era. In the ancient world, class was the determinator, not gender. So women in the higher classes had a lot of authority in ways that we wouldn't understand with our social structure. So first of all, because of the idea of public man and private woman, women really did run the household. They had tremendous authority and the household itself was a little factory. You know, it was an economic production unit. So they were running that, sending the, the slaves into the fields. They were teaching other of the uh, women slaves the crafts of weaving and spinning. If you think of the biblical um, figure Dorcas, who was a uh, in high textile industry. So these these women had authority. They had economic powers that were recognized and legitimate. That's one piece. Another piece is that in the class hierarchical structure of Mediterranean society, what made the society work was that those in a higher social class would take on individuals in a lower social class and be their protectors and supporters. This is what the role of patron is. You grew up in Spain, I grew up in Mexico. That structure was there, mm -hmm. the patronage structure. So I understood it when I read it. I, oh yeah, I get that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what that meant is that women in the upper classes then could be patrons, which had a lot of status to it. It had a lot of power. And then perhaps most importantly, is when you have your own network, it provides information, it provides access, it provides services. And so women had that form of political power that comes via a network and being the at the, at the center of a network that they've created. And those are lifelong relationships. So this is a charity, shall we say. It's an unequal relationship, but it's got commitments both directions and it's a stable relationship. So in the gospel accounts, we encounter this mention of female patrons, and yet it seems that culturally, historically, um, and we're going to talk about why this is, why there has been a systematic erasure of the role of women within the Christian you know, power structures and the influence of the Roman Empire and Hellenistic culture on that. But how would you describe for our listeners what the elements were that really began to chip away at that influential role of women in the early church. You mentioned just now the shift from the private to the public, the ways in which there's a clear delineation. Um, and maybe we could begin there within Hellenistic culture talking about that split, that there was an understanding of what the private life was, where women were given more authority, and public life. Um, maybe let's begin there, Karen. Can you share with us about 
what that split was really about. The image that comes to mind, again, when I started learning or experiencing these things, again, growing up in Mexico, the streets were public sphere and they were male dominated. And so a woman on the streets would look down in counting a man and was in some kind of jeopardy being on the streets because that wasn't female space, that was male space. Mm. And in antiquity too, is when a woman went out, it was always accompanied. And that was the ideal scenario where when I grew up in Mexico, although that wasn't my parents' idea, so we were not accompanied. And so experienced that ambiguity of that space. So that's first about the space, the division between public and private. And then secondly, it's both a class division and a gender division, mm-hmm. because it's only the freeborn men, not the slaves, who participate in the public, and women don't. So women and slaves, in that sense, are dependent and not full political persons. So in the Roman Senate, which is the center of government, it was male only. And it was elite males only, property holders. And we see these ancient divisions in our own society because with the founding of the American Constitution, those who had political rights were freeborn, property, males. Yep. So our democracy mimics these early cultural practices. That meant that women were not allowed the board of command, is how it was talked about. Women were not allowed to participate in political processes. My favorite quote from this period that sort of captures that is one of the Roman senators was opposing the idea of women had petitioned on a particular issue to come and speak to the Senate. And uh, this particular senator expressed, I think, the views of most of them is, that is not possible. That is not acceptable. And he said, if women become your equals, they will soon become your superiors. <laughs> so that, that, uh-huh. that captures the, the anxiety there, yeah. that that gender hierarchy was fragile. Yeah. You know? And if you didn't maintain the boundaries of public space, then you would lose power, is what that message is. One of the things I so appreciate about the context that you provide in explaining some of these Greco-Roman cultural realities and even how it was societally structured is that it allows us to have a bit more awe-infused reverence for the revolution of what Jesus was doing (laughs) in the sense that, you know, and granted, this is a Jewish man from Galilee who is bringing a revolutionary message of liberation, but that's one thing, right? Like, you know, you're talking about a liberatory message in the midst of oppression that's already awe-inspiring, but the fact that he is fully including women into that picture and communicating with women Mm -hmm. and sending women out as apostles, it gives us a better understanding to why his paradigm was so upsetting and such a threat. Yeah, yeah. I'd love for you to share with us a little bit about, if we could do a slight drive-by, from how this revolutionary, gender-inclusive teacher, mystic messenger, bringing a complete revolutionary paradigm shift, how we go from that to, over the first through fourth centuries, the increasing pressure for Christianity to move from a private spiritual path celebrated with small communities where women were actively leading and in leadership positions, to it becoming a public statewide religion, and how that shift created some of these empire-like structure um, changes that we're now so Mm -hmm. familiar with. It's fun to visit Rome because there are places, and they are under basilicas now, but they were built over famous old house churches. And a house church was where a householder, so now you're talking about somebody who at least has some property, a householder opened their home to a group of religious fanatics (laughs) who had discovered this new religion and were really empowered by it. And one of the things that was so empowering was the kind of honor, respect, and participation that were given to women and to the poor. 
In fact, when the detractors of Christianity said, and Celsus is the one I'm thinking of right now, Christians, what do you have there? You have women and children. That's who goes. How can that be any kind of a meaningful religion or institution? So that characterized that community. So the community met in the home of someone who had a home, and they treated each other as brother and sister. That was quite remarkable. Again, Celsus in his diatribe against Christianity says, well, (laughs) they call each other brother and sister. Yeah, well, we know that they talk a lot about love. So you can imagine where that was going. (laughs) So the implications were that there was incest Mm -hmm. going on, Mm -hmm. you know, to that, that language, how revolutionary that language is of we are a family, we are brothers and sisters, we love each other. So this was the, this is what characterized that early community and a mirror, you know, of what it looked like in the eyes of the dominant culture. So it grew more and more churches, more and more communities, and they developed a network within a city. So there was a point at which probably early in the third century, so they had bishops who were leaders and spokespersons for the Christian house churches in a region that gave them the possibility also of providing services sort of region-wide. I'm thinking of Rome because it's so vivid in Rome of all the house churches. And so the bishop had resources, financial resources, to help if someone was captive and needed to be ransomed or there were health issues and someone needed to visit or there was poverty. And so those resources that were then citywide could be used for the things that the community needed. And just to talk about the bishops in Rome, that role evolved and evolved as the community grew into a very powerful role. And one of the places you see that is when Rome was under siege from the barbarians. This is around the collapse of the Roman Empire. An early fall of Rome, there were several. And these bishops then, with those resources of the church, stepped into the role of political leaders Mm -hmm. and negotiated with the barbarians for a truce. And they would use the tremendous wealth that accumulated from the church, and they would bring in food for the city that was besieged. You know, we look a few centuries into the future, you can see how this early formation, social formation, worked and the ways in which it was effective in the gaps that it filled. Okay, so we have the church growing. We have the role of bishops. Uh, They're becoming stronger and stronger and more influential. So what we begin to see is a process where the organizational models that evolve within the Christian community are drawn from the surrounding culture which is the Roman political order. And so the bishops gained more and more authority and more and more power. And the role of patrons, and so early in this story, the bishops are patrons. They protect the people who are under them. And so when Christianity was being persecuted, the bishops were really key in terms of the kind of power they had and their role at providing protection as much as possible and then taking care of families when there had been executions. And so you in, in this period up until Constantine in the fourth century, you have periodically a real adversarial relationship between the Roman government and the Christian communities under the bishops. But if you think about Roman politics in this period, political question for those in power is always, where is my power base and how can I expand it? So the Christians are a unified group because of the bishops, and the bishops meet in councils to deal with issues that are across the whole Roman Empire. So they're playing a very important role. And eventually what happened is Constantine understood that this was a powerful group, and it's better to become a patron of this group than it is to be an adversary, you know. And so that's how he saw the political situation. And he converted to Christianity over a period of time. And I think that's genuine. And so now you have a relationship where the emperor is a patron of the church. 
Okay, so as that evolves more, Roman political ideas about organizations became more and more uncomfortable with the role of powerful women, because now their powers really were political in the context of Rome. And so you begin to see more and more resistance and opposition to women's leadership. And it evolves. And one of the striking pieces for me was in the sixth century. So now we're like, three centuries beyond Constantine, there was a big movement that women's voices should not be heard in public. Yeah. And so they shouldn't be in choirs. <laughs> and you can see it architecturally. When Constantine converted to Christianity and became a patron of the churches, he built churches for the Christian bishops. And these churches were modeled on the Roman basilica. And Basilica is a political space. It's a reception area when there's visiting ambassadors or visiting rulers that come. It's a judicial area. It's an economic area. Contracts are made and so on in the Basilica. And that's the, in his understanding, that's what the Christian church was. And it, it, it's true. It did serve all those purposes for the community. And so that gave the Christian space of the basilica, gave it enormous amount of dignity, you know, in, in the Roman culture. You know, it's this kind of a space. It's a space of power and political power as well as economic power. And so there was increasing uh, dissonance between women's roles of leadership, which they had, and this evolving organizational pattern, which is built on on. Roman administrative structures. And the, the systematic need then at the time of Constantine and then beyond to somewhat systematize, organize, and delineate a careful sort of a more cohesive, unified, I'm using quotation marks, unified story of this is what Christianity is yeah. and this is what Christianity is not. And um, talk to us, Karen, about the, the role of these council meetings and how did the political Roman agenda or just sort of social structuring or even just paradigm, because it was so much a part of how people thought, it was really just systemically the paradigm from which um, everyone was operating from, which is why the revolution of, of Jesus's approach and inclusion of women and his message was so problematic. So as these councils began to gather and attempt to unify the story, talk to us about how those edits influenced what we now have as Christian scripture, you know, the Bible, mm -hmm. knowing that at that time there were countless gospels and stories and letters that were not included in the story. And many of them might have been written by women or by female-led communities. Yeah, the quest for unity. That's a helpful question, actually, the way you're putting it. So if I step back into this period, you have a quest for unity as you have bishops. And all through the writings on Christianity is about unity, to forgive each other, to stay in communion, to provide resources for those who don't have it. We are a community and the unity of the community is crucial. That was the lifeblood also of the church. Now, that unity became more political rather than social. <laughs> more uniformity. Yes, mm -hmm. more uniformity and articulated more in political terms and patrolled. But you already were seeing that happen with the bishops before you get to Constantine. And the bishops always came from the aristocracy because that's who you wanted. Who's going to be powerful enough or wealthy enough to provide protection for the Christians when persecutions break out? So your leadership in the bishops as Christianity grew came from the ruling social classes and with their paradigms of ruling. One of the things that is distinct really about Christianity is the way in which unity began to be defined in doctrinal terms. And so you had this history of huge debates, controversies that could be local, could go like wildfire and become, you know, take on a region. And so Christian unity became defined more and more in terms of what you believe, which of these teachings you believe, 
how you articulate them. And so you get a growing sense of homogeneity and rigidity and uh, means of enforcement to preserve a unity that is now defined not in terms of our commitment to each other, but is defined in terms of our commitment to a set of formulations of intellectual, propositional, verbal formulations. And so that really changes the character, the heart of what the church is organized. And then you see that, I mean, that liturgy itself incorporates, these are the things we believe. It becomes defining of Christian identity in a way that was really different than it was defined in the times of Jesus and in the couple of centuries that followed. So we have this systematizing effort to unify a religious empire, really, in that moment, a whole creed of beliefs Mm -hmm. that would define what Christianity was and what it wasn't. And this commitment to the ideal that you mention seems very much a prototype or a copy of Aristotle's influence and Plato's influence. And we see this play out in the early church fathers and the, you know, the, and I, it's like I'm using quotation marks for everything and I forget that the listeners can't see me do this, but, you know, those original, um, the original theologians that so influenced the direction of where the church went and what the church believed. We're talking about Origen and Tertullian and, and these are people, they're human beings, but these were men who uh, were also writing out theology in the spirit of how Aristotle and Plato created these paradigms and worldviews, and some might even say abstractions, the mm-hmm. you know separation between the spirit and matter. And I want to ask you about this because it's foundational to Christianity, yeah. this, right. this time and those who shaped it. So talk to us about who Origen, Tertullian were, and then I want to read a quote from your book really quick before I let you dive into that. You say, modern church scholars have invariably assumed that the condemnation of women's leadership by these ancient Christian writers was based on theological arguments. When Tertullian and his ilk bar women from teaching and baptizing, scholars have tended to see divine and therefore unassailable justification behind it. But such interpretations are guilty of serious oversight. They fail to take into account the enormous extent to which the Christian church allowed Greco-Roman social dogma to pervade its teachings, in this case, the secular circumscriptions on women's activities. They also somehow missed an important implication in these ancient denunciations, that women actually held significant positions of leadership in churches. Otherwise, there would be no need for these fulminations, which convey the unmistakable tone of threatened authority. (laughs) What I love about that passage, too, is that you're just basically calling out the inherent humanity of all of these choices and how much social constructs and assumptions that were based on paradigms of power over we're driving the creation of these sacred, quote-unquote, theologies. Yeah, in a sense, these theologians, these fathers of the church, are as influential as the sacred scriptures that they interpreted in terms of shaping how they are understood. And for women, and this is what I looked at most, they drew on their culture's horror, really, of women in power. So there was the two dimensions. It's women's illegitimate authority because it doesn't conform to the gender hierarchy. And because in Tertullian, you see that more clearly. You see that more clearly in the West than you do in the East, where sexuality plays a really major role. And so when you read Tertullian, he goes into incredible rants. And I really do mean incredible because he was a rhetorician. He was amazing in his power with language about how dangerous and how destructive women's sexuality is. And there is only one way to deal with it, and that is keep them at home, (laughs) keep them out of anything that had to do with the further development and leadership of the church. So one of the things that I I didn't understand when I began all this work, and then it's just inescapable, is how core ideas about sexuality are to the exclusion of women. So it's gender and sexuality. And on those points, 
the church fathers have really failed women in a massive way. And another point, um, especially for these philosophical systems, Aristotle or Plato, the role of the body is contrasted with the role of reason or the soul. And men have more reason than women do in these systems of understanding, of understanding gender. And that has carried through so that anything connected with the body is devalued in comparison to reason. So the work of childbearing, the work of child rearing, the ways in which women live embodied lives more, and the role of the philosopher and the role of leadership is to live in the mind and not in the body. And so you've got the hierarchy of the mind over the body as underlining the gender hierarchy. And that's the legacy of this framing that Christianity received from the tradition of the Greek philosophers. It's a very intellectual religion, Christianity is. It's much more intellectual than it is ritual. And so the, these ideas are crucial and they have a tremendous influence. What's so incompatible to me about this just drive-by through history is that you have a religion that is seeking to sort of foundationally base its premise on incarnation, <laughs> yes. On, yes. on the idea of the divine becoming human, of God loving this materiality so much that God's desire is to be made part of it, to participate fully. And I like to say on this podcast, I, I struggle to say God. I usually say things like the community formerly known as God or community FKA God, <laughs> because <laughs> it gives it gives less of a hierarchical, you know, masculine dominant uh, view of the essence of who or what God could be. Mm -hmm. But I want to ask you about these strong binaries that were so philosophically influenced by the Platonic worldviews of these binaries. You know, you've got the spirit and matter or reason over the soul or the body. And we have these strong dualities of good and evil. And then, of course, you know, all of this playing itself out at a foundational level around gender. I want to ask you about the relationship between power and permeability. And permeability being seen as vulnerability, the bodily capacity to be permeable in female gendered bodies. What I struggle with, and I think a lot of people struggle with, is this incompatibility that I just mm -hmm. named, or this dissonance between a religion that was started on a premise of vulnerability as beautifully powerful, yeah. Jesus born in a manger, the entire liberatory movement to discover a liberation beyond the oppression of the Romans. And yet the church fathers move us in precisely the opposite direction yeah. in some of these really, really horrifically damning statements about which bodies are worthy and which bodies are not. And how do those delineations rest on this idea of power and permeability? I know in your book you write about the relationship between the penetrator and the penetrated and how much that was culturally tied to and synonymous with social structures of power. Yeah, and that work comes from Foucault. You know, he's looking at the history of sexuality, so that's really, really helpful. And basically what penetrability and impenetrability is about is who's on top and who's on the bottom. And that that's both literal and it is also, more importantly, metaphorical. So mm -hmm. it is, for example, the male who penetrates and the female is penetrated. In homosexual relations, it is the higher social class that demonstrates the dominance is the penetrator and the lower social class, either by youth or as slaves, um, is the penetrated. So that's one of the places you know, where you see how that duality is worked out. And as you were forming that question, I was thinking this is out of the period, but it's, I think, a good counterpoint is on the incarnation, the point at which you really get a whole new concept of embodiment is with Francis of Assisi. 
And just a quick note for our listeners here. Francis of Assisi was an Italian mystic from the 13th century uh, who founded the Franciscan movement. And obviously, we've made a huge historical leap here. But what I appreciate about Karen's point is that it's not until mystical theology, beginning in the Middle Ages and beyond, that Christians were able to overcome this matter-spirit split, the platonic foundations upon which Christianity was uncomfortably resting on since the days of its founding and in the early theology of the early church fathers. Okay, let's dive back in. The way that Francis understood the body was imitation of the Christ needs to be imitation of Christ in the body. And so poverty was essential to what it meant to be a Christian. And the work of following Christ is to live the bodily experience of Christ. And his theology is built around that. And those movements that are like his that began in that period, they began as poverty movements. They began as critiques of the new rising capitalism that was taking place in the cities. And those movements emphasized the equality between men and women. So you had male orders and female orders, you know, following each other. Mm -hmm. It's just interesting that when you see that focus on the body reemerge, you see poverty and you see gender equality because Jesus' movement began as a movement among the poor. And it was for the poor. And gender equality up to a point, right? Because we still see the predominance of power of the, you know, the the power over Christian structure was still alive and well. And, you know, we see women like Teresa of Avila writing these incredible mystical treatises, but still having to, you know, cage it all in this language of, you know, but I'm just a woman, what do I know? Right. You know, so that she wouldn't upset her superiors. So we do see uh, a rise of this um, incarnational desire for embodiment, but but it's mm-hmm. still operating inside the confines of a very well-established empire yeah. of power over. Um, so please continue then. Yeah. Where you see that early memory, shall we say, of the Jesus movement and what that meant is all along the storyline of Christianity as century after century, there were always groups of those who rebelled against the hierarchy and the the domination and constraint of only this is what we believe and only this is what we practice. So you have a consistent history of a counter voice and it's different in different periods, but you could see that that early beginning is still alive within the tradition. It can't be suppressed because it just bursts out again and again. And then, of course, it becomes threatening to the power structure. And so then you have persecutions where the church is persecuting and uh, conflicts are there. I'd like to kind of um, dive into our own time a little bit and draw some of these connections for the listeners. In speaking about these cultural conflations within social class structures and sexual power, And this understanding of sexual power is conflated with the politics and upholding masculine dominant power over as being superior to the quote-unquote feminine of power with. And just the conflation between sexuality and social dominance that has becomes so much a part of the the lexicon of how we see reality. It has informed so many cultures since these initial kind of joinings of the beginnings yeah. of the Christian empire that now in, in our own country here in the States, we're experiencing this in an ongoing way. And how do you see these things as being related, as having a domino effect leading us to the moment we are in, in which it's astonishing to be in a position where the authority that I have over my own body is being questioned? Yeah. <laughs> it's astonishing, but it feels very much related, at least in, in my understanding, to this relationship between power and permeability that you speak of in your book. Yeah, the um, I was thinking even in slaveholding societies, the body of the slave is permeable, mm-hmm. and that's defining 
of what it means to be a slave and what it means to experience a slave identity is that powerlessness and that permeability. And I've just been reading African-American writers on the period of slavery and where it brings us today. And the assertion of power over the slave is an assertion of whiteness and it's an assertion of sexual dominance, you know, and those two go together Mm. and they underscore privilege. So privilege and male privilege is intimately tied to sexual dominance. And that's how power is expressed and it's really understood in terms of who penetrates and who is penetrable. We find ourselves in a moment where our planet is in crisis. (laughs) We are in the midst of an ecological crisis. And so I find that a lot of people in my generation and younger are hungering for ecological imagery. And as you're describing this, you know, hierarchy of power over and the social dominance of the penetrator, all I can think about is how unconcomitant that is with like mycelial networks that (laughs) permeate and interpenetrate every facet of our reality or even, you know, our understanding of, of quantum physics or our understanding of the fluid realities of our intermingling relations that are notions of the separateness of individuals, let alone structures of hierarchy of power over, are really abstractions from what is true, which is intermingling, interdependent, permeable, loving reality of relationality, which is power with. And so I want to ask you as we begin to wrap up, Maybe on a personal note, I don't know what the hell I am. I don't, I don't know what to call myself anymore. I, I don't, I'm not even trying to come up with a term. I suppose that's part of why I was drawn to doing a podcast called Unknowing, because I'm only becoming more and more comfortable with unknowing these terms and concepts, so long as I am moving more courageously into creative love. That's all that matters to me. So, Karen, as you look around you at the the relational power between uh, these Greco-Roman social structuring and hierarchies and philosophies that have somewhat co-opted the Jesus movement. What are your views on what is crumbling? What needs to be composted here? What is the life-giving opportunity of what is dying? And where can we kind of mycelially be at work in decomposing what has been to make room for what could be as we think about movements like Christianity? Yeah, it's already happening. You know, in the sense of, in comparison to antiquity, the idea of democracy and the way that it has played out has really led to the idea that everyone should be empowered and that there's not a hierarchy of value. It's also led, and here I think I would say our individualism has led to enormous, even grander than they were in antiquity, differences between wealth and poverty. Mm -hmm. So I think one part of our heritage that needs to be unknown or (laughs) unlearned is individualism. You know, the way that we think about ourselves, the way we think about our life goals, the way we think about our country, our society. It's not nearly mycelial enough. Right. And that's what's true. You know, I complain about the way in which we write our books. You know, it needs to be something that's in, that's unique. We make our own contribution. That's what the dissertation is about. But if you were honest and wrote down everybody that influenced you, where you learned, I mean, you would see there's... Barely an individual here. You know, this is a huge community effort. And everyone has been involved and have given generously and willingly of their energies, their ideas, and their insights. And so we as writers are created by our communities. You see, but we can't see that. This is the paradigm problem you're talking about. We don't have that as a framework. So we don't even know this, how interdependent we are, so that we can't 
think about it and amaze at it and value it and cultivate it. So I think that's one of the really significant ways that things could change. Yeah, I'm with you. You know, my paradigms come more and more from nature. Mm. I spend more and more time with nature because there's truths there that have been lost because agricultural communities, um, traditional villages, that's where learning and wisdom came from. You know, it came from that interaction with nature and then with industrialization that's kind of been, it's like a blanket has been pulled over that. We aren't connected as much and we don't see as much. So that's another place, I think, that we can do profound kinds of unknowing. Yeah, I feel that in the sense that when people have asked about unknowing as a path, and that sometimes I jokingly say, you know, I think it's a path for the makers, not the monks. It's sort of like those who want to participate fully in this life and live that life more abundant. <laughs> that, that was uh, maybe initially the premise of many of these spiritual traditions. To give of ourselves with that much courage, to give ourselves away until there is nothing left but new life emerging from the rotting shape of one tree giving birth to many others. And when people ask me about unknowing, it is not a passage from unknowing into, and now at last I know. For me, at least, it has been a passage from unknowing. And the more that I unknow, the more I am remembered, which is to say brought into greater membership, a reconnection or a deepened relationship with reality and to see myself as part of that, to see permeability as powerful because it's creative. So I just, I want to thank you so much for your time and for sharing these insights, the ways in which looking at these things historically can hopefully empower us to remember, <laughs> to be membered to our own creative power, that we too can be origins and Tertullian, that we, we don't have yeah. to just continue. To yes, that we yeah. don't have to just continue worshiping the past. Um, because by doing so, maybe we are upholding particular structures and paradigms and philosophies that need to die and need to make way for something new. So, Karen, thank you so much for taking some time today to speak with me. I appreciate you and your work so much. Bree, have you uh, written some of your own ideas out? I'm, I'm kind of in the midst of that a little bit. I'm teaching some seasonal courses on the relationship between the body and creativity and kind of reconnecting with that membership a little bit more. So sort of working on it. Yeah, you're eloquent, absolutely eloquent. And you have coined terms and connections that are so intuitive, you know, that you can just, you hear it and you go, oh yeah, that's exactly right. You need to write. <laughs> Thank you. It's just wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. I'll work on that. I will uphold that okay. piece of, of my end of this web that we're in together. Okay. Thank you so much for your work and for your willingness to come on the show today. Oh, it's been fascinating. Okay, so we're learning to look up from our maps, to learn how to relate, not dominate, not try to control, subjugate, dominate the wild but let ourselves be in communion with it and each other. Here are a few pieces of True North wisdom I'm taking with me from this conversation on composting Christianity. I found it really helpful to hear Dr. Torgerson talk about the private and public split. I don't know about you all, but a lot of lights went on for me when I heard this description of what was happening in the Greco-Roman culture of the time of the formation of Christianity. It was like, oh, okay, this explains a lot. <laughs> so when this revolutionary movement began to blend the public and private sphere together, it makes sense that women in leadership were upsetting the apple cart of how things were done. And while we didn't discuss it, it also explains why certain letters and books were not included in the canon of the Bible when the decision was made, which letters, which books, what is the narrative arc, how are we going to put this together? Which brings me to this point about unity and uniformity. And the reality is, when we're trying to create a story, 
Whether that story is personal or we're trying to create a large historical narrative, we're going to just focus on the witnesses, the evidence, the supporting structures that are going to help make our story the only story, which is that impulse that we talked about, that we saw with the desire that these early church fathers had to create uniformity, to create a delineation between who was in, what was right, what was the correct doctrine, and everything else that wasn't was sort of kicked out, out into the wild. So it makes me think about how I do that how we do that in large and small ways in our lives. The narratives that we create, the stories of us versus them, the who's right and who's wrong, the politics of power. And as Karen said, she's spending more and more time in nature, drawing imagery from nature. What happens if instead of trying to create these singular narrative arcs, we just learn how to relate in a more web-like form to our histories, to our shared complicities, to our responsibility, and to our future potentiality. Second piece of True North wisdom, I am just continually discovering the ways in which Christianity, as one of Richard Rohr's seminary teachers said, <laughs> is based more on Plato than on Jesus. And, you know, once you see it, you can't stop seeing it. Uh, it's kind of like your ex-boyfriend's car. It's just like it's, it's suddenly everywhere, everywhere. When she said, anything connected to the body was devalued compared to reason. That was the milieu within which all of these theologians wrote and developed the foundational theology of Christianity. So, yeah, of course women weren't included in that. The bodily experience of women, the permeability, the vulnerability of women, women who were pregnant, who were nursing, it's just crazy-making to think about. And it's not just about women or even just human bodies, but when you translate that, anything connected to the body is devalued compared to reason. Now we see some of the foundations of how we find ourselves in the ecological crisis that we're in. When mind is given authority, power over bodiliness, reason is given power over materiality, gives rise to the attitude that domination over the wild is the correct and proper direction of power. But as we discussed, it seems like incarnation is a different premise. And some Christian mystics along the way seem to also point in a different direction. The direction of the founder of this entire movement as well was orienting to a communal paradigm one in which the power was with, not over. Final piece of True North wisdom. I really appreciate that Karen wrapped things up toward the end by saying, one of the critical things that we need to unknow is our individuality. We need to reframe our understanding of ourselves as interdependent and intertwined, as belonging to one another, as being membered to each other. And I couldn't agree more. That's it for today's episode. Next week, oh, we're digging into some good earth. <laughs> we're going to be exploring a rerouting and rewilding of the Gospels with Sophie Strand, who is one of my favorite authors and ecological thinkers out there. She's a friggin' mystic, troubadour, mischief maker. I just can't wait for you to experience her. Listen, if all of this deep dive into history has not been easy for you, just know you're not alone. I got this message from listener and fan Aaron Mills, and it was so funny. I asked him if I could share it. You know, it just perfectly encapsulates the paradox of being part of this unknowing adventure. Sometimes I'm mad at you for inviting me into the unknowing. Thankfully, that's not very often, and when it is, it lasts for one split second to realize what it is that I'm feeling, and then to immediately remember that there's nothing I would rather know than the things I do now, which is mystery. <laughs> so not no at all. <laughs> You're not alone, Aaron. If you want to send me some messages that I can put on the show, hey, go for it. I'm here for it. I'm also here for your support. This podcast is only brought to you because of the support of the patrons who make this happen. 
If you'd like to join our community in helping to keep unknowing going, that was harder to say than it should have been. You can check out the notes in this episode to find out more. And last but not least, I always like to close the show with a little bit of poetry. This is from David White, Sweet Darkness. You must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you.